Hello and welcome to Women of the Middle East podcast. This podcast relates the realities of Arab women and their rich and diverse experiences. It aims to present the multiplicity of women's voices, and it wishes to break cultural stereotypes about women of the Middle East, as well as educate and empower the younger generation of Middle Eastern women who were stripped of their historical reference and weren't necessarily raised to believe in their agency and power to create their own destiny. I'm Amman Al-Malki, I'm a feminist, scholar, and educator. I'm also the author of Arab Women in Arab News, Old Stereotypes and New Media. I created this podcast to be an extension and an update of the book and its main topics. Hello, I hope you're all well. I was so excited to receive your emails. Some of you shared their stories with me, and I'm so humbled that you trusted me with them. While some are willing to speak about their experiences with injustice and abuse, others would rather keep it to themselves. And in both cases, remember, you own your story, and it's only you who can decide on how to let it go. But what is important is that you release it so you can heal. And I'm here to listen, whether you want me to share it or not. Another thing I've um, been asked about is why have I called the podcast Women of the Middle East rather than Women in the Middle East? Well, it's my attempt to transcend imposed geographical borders and cultural and religious boundaries between women and the collective experiences that bring us together. I wanted to put women in a discourse of fluidity and freedom and talk about Middle Eastern women in a transnational context. My women reside in the MENA region and they are also the women who originate from the MENA region but reside elsewhere. Uh, They are the women who have been influenced by the cosmopolitanism of ideologies, beliefs and realities from the so-called East, West, North So, I hope I answered that question. This is episode 6. And while I have slowed down, I haven't stopped as you see. I'll be posting one episode every month, as I found that the content that I present isn't very easy to digest, giving you, hopefully, enough time to listen and react. In this episode, I'll talk about Lebanese women by first contextualizing their struggle and the overall political picture. Then I speak to Zaina Abdelkhala, who is a feminist and a human rights advocate. So now let's talk about Lebanon. To speak about Lebanese women is to speak about a nation's struggle. Lebanon is a country with different faces. The beauty of its nature and climate and the diversity of its people are tarnished by its political and economic upheavals, which left the country an easy target for internal divisions. For example, and to take the post-Arab Spring era as an example, Lebanon has been suffering from deteriorating economy, has taken in Syrian refugees, which has put further pressure on their economy, and their internal political tensions continue to escalate. Recently, the economic crisis has led the state to get over-indebted, 
and this has decided to impose a tax on internet calls like WhatsApp calls. This didn't go well with the people who have been struggling on daily basis, let alone the failure of the government to address pending issues such as unemployment, increase of poverty, and the waste crisis that began in 2015. Lebanon ranked 137 out of 180 countries, 180 being the worst on the Transparency International's 2019 Corruption Perceptions Index. The people couldn't take it anymore. A massive uprising took over the whole country against the government's corruption, which resulted in the resignation of the Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri in October 2019. The COVID-19 pandemic has hit hard an economy that was already collapsing, exacerbating the crisis and exposing the inequalities in a society that has already suffered civil wars and divisions. Then came the port explosion in Beirut on August 4, 2020 that killed at least 200 people and injured about 5,000 others. Increasing abuses occurred to the marginalized populations, such as migrant workers, the majority of whom are women from Africa and Asia, at least seven of whom have taken their own lives since March 2020. Another marginalized population is the refugees. Over 70% of refugees in Lebanon live under the poverty line. The country has a history of being a battlefield for sectarianism. Sectarianism is an identity politics and a way of living, putting the national identity at its mercy. The three main political offices, President, Speaker of Parliament and Prime Minister, are divided among the three biggest communities, Maronite Christians, Shia Muslims and Sunni Muslims, respectively, under an agreement dating back to 1943. Needless to say that each group is concerned mainly and is looking after their own interests. Parliament's 128 seats are also divided evenly between Christians and Muslims, including Druze. Lebanese women, a never-ending struggle. Let's now zoom in and talk about feminism and women's rights in Lebanon by giving a brief history and also standing on the main persistent challenges Lebanese women face. Rita Stefan in 2014 writes about the four waves of Lebanese feminism. She states, and I summarize here, the feminist movement in Lebanon has been active since the 1920s with the beginning of the work of upper-class women in charity organizations. It then grew into women's labor organizations and Christian women's solidarity organizations through the 40s. The end of the first wave of feminism coincided with the era of nation-building, the establishment of the first Lebanese Republic following independence from the French Mandate in 1943. Lebanese women won the right to vote and participate in the national elections in 1953, two decades before women in Switzerland. The second wave was during the 60s and 70s, with the establishment of committees for women by a number of political parties, especially communist and leftist, to discuss their issues and raise their awareness. However, the Lebanese civil war broke out in 1975 as a direct result from the escalating tension between Palestinian refugees and the Christians, allowing Syria to intervene. 
women's civil rights took a back burner to ending violence, which became the priority for all activists. The third wave was more international, adopting international treaties for women. The UN Conference on Women in Beijing marked the birth of the third wave of feminism in Lebanon. In the 1990s, international organizations' effort brought the Lebanese government to form a partnership pertaining to women and their social welfare services and many other basic rights. The fourth wave was post-Arab Spring, around 2005 till present. That year, in 2005, was a year of turmoil in many spots in the Middle East and in Lebanon as well. Global and multicultural feminism took center stage. It also saw the rise of many women's rights movements, many of which focused on raising awareness of domestic violence and protesting the vulnerability of its victims in the legal system that didn't protect some, such as migrant workers and sexual minorities. The 2018 UN Development Programme report entitled Lebanon, Gender, Justice and the Law gives us a fairly full list of institutional injustices Lebanese women face. Gender and nationality law. Women cannot pass their citizenship to their children. Marital rape is not criminalized. Abortion is prohibited. There is no law prohibiting early marriages. Women do not enjoy equal rights in marriage and divorce under personal status law. Polygamy is not prohibited by personal status law for Muslims, although it's rare. Men have guardianship over children, while women don't, except for Armenian Orthodox couples. Women have custody over young children, and many conditions are imposed on their custodian rights. Women inherit less than men in the Islamic law. In the labor law, women's maternity leave is 10 weeks, which is less than um, what international labor organization uh, standards um, are, which is 14 weeks, basically. Women are prohibited from certain occupations. And domestic workers are excluded from the protection of the labor law. Still, a couple of legal reforms took place that are worth mentioning. The Violence Against Women campaign succeeded to push forward a law in 2014. Ruth Begum, who is a Middle East and North Africa women's rights researcher at Human Rights Watch, states that Lebanon's law on domestic violence finally recognizes that women subjected to abuse by husbands and families need protection and legal resources. But the law has serious flaws and the parliament should consider amendments to fully protect women from domestic violence. For example, the law doesn't cover other abuses such as marital rape. The booth in 2017 in the legal reform and women's rights and Lebanese personal status laws and CMU, CMI report speaks about the alteration of the Sunni personal status law to allow mothers to keep their children with them for a longer time following divorce. Activists worked for more than seven years to prove that there isn't a clear religious rule about that and worked with both politicians and religious men. And thus the campaign to increase the custody age worked. Finally, Human Rights Watch 
has submitted a report to the United Nations Committee reviewing Lebanon's compliance with the UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which is tentatively scheduled for June 2021. One of the main issues that haven't been addressed since the previous review in 2015 is the recommendation to have a unified personal status code. They currently have 15 religion-based personal status laws, as well as the amending uh, um, of the discriminatory nationality law to ensure that Lebanese women married to non-Lebanese men can pass on their citizenship to their children. Now in this segment, I'm happy to talk to Zaina Abdelkhaleh, a feminist and a human rights advocate with a bachelor degree in biology and a master's in public uh, health from the American University of Beirut. Zina is a certified gender trainer from Akit University Amsterdam and have been working with international organizations for the past 10 years as a development and gender expert. She has extensive experience in programming, policy work, research and organizational development in critical areas related to gender mainstreaming and promoting women's participation in the decision-making spheres. First of all, I would like to know more about you. If you can present yourself, tell us a bit about you, your background, which is very diverse and very interesting. I'm very pleased to be with you also today. I mean, I come from a background in public health and biology from science background. But when I started working, um, I started in research, in public health research, and then I shifted into development by working with the Minister of Social Affairs and International Organization. And then uh, I, I was like driven to... Um, the social field. So I've been working for the past 10 years in gender and development and I pursued uh, the higher education in uh, gender studies. Um, and uh, now it's it's my passion. I'm a feminist, a woman activist, and it's, it's what I do. I, I uh, read that you said um, that because of institutional barriers and enshrined um, patriarchy, um, that are impeding the attainment of any real progress in terms of gender equality in the social development institutions. Uh, you felt powerless and you wanted to do more. Uh, tell me more about that, your, your, uh, the shift in your career and your focus. There's commonality between uh, the Arab countries in terms of uh, structural barriers that face women. Uh, and their attainment of gender equality. Uh, in Lebanon, there's also the uh, the institutionalized patriarchy and the sectarian system, which adds one extra layer of uh, of barriers for women. So uh, um, you, you reach a certain point where you feel like you're powerless to defeat this glass ceiling. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, uh, I had a, it was like a career juncture when I, uh, I really went to feminist, uh, to feminist uh, higher education uh, like course. And then um, I came up motiv- back motivated and really uh, like um, believing that women's agency and having this collective uh, work is the only way for us, for women to achieve uh, the equality agenda. Uh, when we talk about Lebanese women, the uh, status quo has always been highly two-edged. On one hand, there's a wide emancipation in terms of uh, participation of cultural and social life, uh, in terms of uh, gender parity in education. Uh, yet, uh, we have uh, limited participation in the economic life and striking backwardness in the participation in the political life. 
and also um, uh, Lebanon is one of the countries that has enacted the fewest uh, changes to discriminatory personal status laws. So uh, uh, the imbalance in power dynamics uh, between men and women starts from the private sphere, the household, uh, where women are prejudiced against, they're discriminated against in terms of the status laws. We have 15 personal status laws, so that the discrimination is not only uh, between men and women, it's among the women themselves. So you and your neighbor uh, may be subjected to different laws based on your sex, sect or religion. In terms of uh, uh, custody, inheritance, uh, so uh, uh, so there's discrimination against women and also among women, between women uh, as a as a group themselves. So uh, we women also Lebanese women cannot grant their citizenship to their children, which goes back to the to a law, a French law in 1920 uh, that hasn't been modified yet, and even those uh, draft laws uh, um, that were presented. Uh, most of them discriminate against the different groups of women in Lebanon. So like one uh, law was presented that allows women to grant their citizenship if their husband is like not from neighboring countries. Uh, so like not if Palestinian or Syrian or so. Uh, so uh, there was no really, uh, no real uh, um, rightful law presented, for instance, in, uh, on the citizenship uh, issue. Uh, uh, there were slight modifications in uh, the personal status laws, uh, uh, mainly pertaining to early marriage, the minimum age of marriage. Uh, but yet still there's no consensus among the different uh, sects. Some sects have not enacted any changes, others have did some modifications. And also, uh, when we think about it, it also comes down to enforcement and how uh, the application of these laws. The religious courts are ruled by men. And so, in many times, it goes back to the initiatives of uh, the religious person responsible in the court, uh, whether to uh, really uh, grant the woman her rightful uh, uh, personal uh, like uh, uh, rights, or just um, find an excuse not to. And it's very easy in our society, you know, like uh, she's not mentally stable, or ha she has a certain behavior that's not adequate, or whatever uh, that abuse against women to. Um, uh, to uh, take their children away from them or uh, uh, not to have the uh, appropriate alimony. So, uh, um, so we have uh, we have problems at the social norms level, at the legal level, uh, at the legislative level, at the enforcement uh, level, and also at the institutional level, because. Um, as I said before, the same power dynamics that women, the imbalance in the power dynamics that women face in the private sphere and at the household sphere, they face at every other sphere in the public spheres, at the community, in the uh, in the marketplace, in the um, in the uh, uh, I mean in the workplace, uh, in the legal level, even in the political life. It's not acceptable in 2020 to have. Uh, 4% of uh, the parliament only uh, women or uh, and the only increase I mean it's like uh, it, a study shows that if we keep with the same pace it will take us more like 150 years to reach uh, parity this is not acceptable I mean uh, with the active participation of women in the social life uh, and the lack of representation of this um, participation in the political life and the um, 
for, uh, and in the economic life. For now, it's ex I mean, it's estimated around 30% the participation of women in the uh, workforce. Uh, but this doesn't reflect the educational attainment. We have more girls in schools than boys. Where do these uh, girls go after education? Why why don't they join the workforce? So um, this is just like a brief uh, overview of the status of women. Is media representing women, Lebanese women, are they doing um, a woman justice and their representation? Do we see those um, institutionalized and structural discrimination represented when speaking about women and uh, on TV shows, um, you know, whatever uh, they are represented in on media. Uh, is media playing their role to expose such injustices? This would be definitely one question. But the other one with, with the number of women yeah, I'll tell you how uh, Lebanese women are perceived as well. You know, we perceive Lebanese women as uh, strong, educated women who have pushed the um, uh, gender equality agenda on multiple levels. Uh, there is a very um, uh, thriving uh, civil society in Lebanon, but why aren't they reaching uh, to the goals they are, you know, why aren't their goals um, being achieved, basically? Yeah, yeah. So uh, first concerning the media, uh, uh, I think yes, uh, the media plays a negative role in, in portraying like one category of Lebanese women and having like we uh, it portrays like one as if the Lebanese uh, women are one category and this is not true. We have to talk nowadays we're a lot talking about intersectional vulnerability. So we don't have one category of women. We have refugee women, we have rural women, we have uh, urban women facing discrimination in the workforce. We have, uh, even as I said before, among the various sects, we have various discriminations in the personal status law. So um, even in terms of emancipation, um, I mean, uh, some cultures, some societies in Lebanon are not uh, don't have, uh, I mean, the same uh, level of emancipation, women don't have the same as others. So the media negatively portrays one one image of the Lebanese women, and this is not correct. As for raising the issues of uh, raising women issues, I mean, recently, I can say like in the last couple of years or so, uh, awareness raising campaigns were covered by the media. We have some shows that uh, that target women's issues, that uh, talk about it, discuss it. So we're starting to go there and media professionals are definitely sh should be a target group for uh, women activists because they're the ones that can amplify their voice uh, and make it um, reachable to a large audience. As for the, we have, we, true, we have a very vibrant civil society and uh, a lot of women activists, but, but personally, I believe that uh, since there's no agreement on like one agenda, uh, one feminist agenda, one woman's rights agenda, uh, and also because some we have like extreme feminists who uh, would uh, push for the max and then some others who would compromise, so uh, I think this is uh, this should be worked out. Uh, CSOs working on women issues really should come with a common agenda, at least one common uh, objective, and each can or several I mean objectives each can implement in its own way the way they perceive most appropriate. But there should be a common agenda, and this is still lacking. Uh, let alone the uh, competition over funds. So, uh, I mean, most of the services provided for women in Lebanon are provided through CSOs. 
and they uh, rely on uh, donors' funding. So uh, this is an intrinsic point. The state uh, doesn't provide services, even, for instance, for GBV survivors. Uh, all services are provided through CSOs, shelters, social support. Uh, so uh, uh, it, I think it's an interesting issue, uh, the competition over the limited funding, because uh, out of all uh, development projects, we know that less than 5% are for gender, uh, I mean, some say less than 3%. Or, so uh, there's serious competition, and uh, th this impedes actually having like uh, uh, fruitful coalitions or those that work towards an, uh, a common objective. Yeah, uh, I was actually one of the questions was the state's role, but you've you've answered it basically. Um, I, can, I can just add a bit more about the state's role. It's through piecemeal reforms. I mean, we just draft the law here, uh, we offer a service there, but there's no holistic approach to empowerment. Uh, even, for instance, when uh, they ratified the domestic violence uh, law, uh, it's a well-known, it's, it's like a success story, one of the successes in 2014. Yet, they didn't want to acknowledge like women in the law. They said women and all other family members, so they don't want to include gender in the law. So there's really no political will, if I may say, to uh, achieve gender equality. We're just like, uh, we just want to show that we are abiding by our international commitments. We we provide our periodic reporting, uh, we send our, but it's really, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not, uh, uh, it's not the effective way to overcome all those structural barriers. I agree with you, and it's very interesting because this happened again with the, in Kuwait, right? Uh, very recently. Um, as if our countries uh, don't want to take on themselves um, the responsibility of women per se. So women are always grouped with family, with children, with and in some cases with the disabled, with um, but this shows, this actually reflects a lack of a very clear vision and very clear national agenda when it comes to uh, women's rights, when it comes to gender equality. And this is basically across, not just in Lebanon really, unfortunately. Um, they don't want to extract the women out of their reproductive role. They want to limit them with their reproductive role. That's why it's always women and the family, women and the children. So um, this is a bit like, a, I think it's time for us women to uh, really raise our voices on this issue. Very interesting, Zaya. You say that and I, I think, um, and this is why our citizenship rights are uh, reduced. Yeah. We're uh, reduced to a second-class a second citizens. Um, one of which is we can't pass our nationality to our children, and basically because we we um, satisfy a, a a predetermined role in our society, which is the reproductive role. Our role is to keep the culture intact, to um, reproduce generations of nationals. Uh, but where are our rights as humans? You're absolutely right. Wow. Um, what do you think the Lebanese woman's role was in the revolution? Um, you know, how does women's presence affect the outcome of the revolution? Of course, you know, women are frequently seen as symbols of revolution, and like um, what happened in Lebanon and Sudan, for example, and more. Actually, for real, uh, 17 October was a changing point because women 
took over the streets. They brought the agenda to the streets, and everyone was chanting women's rights and uh, um, minority groups' rights. And it was an opportunity for all, uh, I mean, for women to uh, actually to flag their agenda, the feminist agenda. And the, uh, people were uh, were very excited, and they believed in change, and they were calling for a civil state. And I believe after, um, I mean. That was very nice, but when we, uh, we we go back, we see that when things like calm down and those uh, leaders sat together on the table to discuss, there were no women present on the decision-making table. So, um, unfortunately, uh, uh, it, it, it couldn't manifest. And even uh, if, if I may say that the cab that we were just mentioning, we have uh, 30% uh, of the ministers uh, as women, uh, yet there, many of them, their uh, responsibilities were stripped away from them. I think that we were expecting more from them. We expected more, but because they were uh, named by uh, by uh, political figures, they had to abide by their agenda, uh, they couldn't have a say. So uh, it was a disappointment. It wasn't the best uh, uh, image to be portrayed of uh, women in decision making and that's why I I don't really put a lot of emphasis on the last cabinet I mean it's not like uh, a changing it's not a changing uh, still women uh, are missing from the effective the actual uh, decision making tables they're not present they're, when we after the last when president macron came to meet with the leaders there were no women at the table so uh, um, despite all the efforts, we're not actually taking part in building our new, uh, I mean, the new, our future. Um, we're all talking about a new Lebanon. Yet, uh, women, women who really stayed on the streets for a long time are not able to have a say on the tables where the decisions are taken. So, um, unfortunately, all that effort did not manifest as we hoped for. Yeah. Uh, which is, this is the cycle of history for women. Uh, yeah. Yeah, in our uh, part of the world. Um, you spoke, you've um, alluded to the intersectional oppressions uh, that um, hates women. Um, you can you community? Yes. Yes. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> actually about that, and especially about migrant workers in Lebanon, I think, um, um, women, uh, you know, um, uh, especially in Lebanon, black women uh, bring, uh, working in the domestic um, sphere have been uh, discriminated against uh, yeah. in many different forms. Um, there were images circulating after COVID the hit uh, of domestic workers being left uh, stranded, unable to go to their countries. Uh, was there solidarity or an opposition? For, for you know for that um, uh, that took place what do you think um, that reflected and um, about the feminist movements in Lebanon I mean uh, the issue of migrant domestic domestic workers was always uh, an issue that we discussed uh, as civil society because the kafala system is unjust um, so and the um, there was, there was, in the, I mean, in the last couple of uh, 10 years or so, there was a unified contract. But it wasn't really, I mean, enforced uh, because uh, 
you know, migrant domestic workers come, some uh, don't have the capacity to read, some. So uh, it was just, as I say, piecemeal reform. There is, we should have abolished the kafala system because the um, households could not afford to pay uh, dollars uh, after the economic and financial crisis. And they, there was no way out because uh, so uh, the, the government, the state, did not take its responsibility. The embassies did not take their responsibilities. Uh, and uh, the usual case, it's left to the initiative of the person. So uh, we ended up with a very, very, I mean, it's, it's one of the saddest images, uh, I mean, um, that we had uh, witnessed. Uh, with migrant domestic worker being left near the embassies, I mean, even the embassies did not open the doors for for uh, for, uh, for the MDWs, um, and uh, the international community also. I think it could have done better, um, at least in terms of supporting the, uh, them in going back to their uh, to their countries. But uh, we can't rely on initiative here and initiative there. The kafala system should stop, should be abolished. So uh, this is what we've been requesting. This is what we, we've been advocating for for the last 10 years. But as everything else, because it's something that has to do with women, with weak women coming from, I mean, women coming from vulnerable communities, women who have no say, it was left out of the agenda. This brings me to a, to a very important point. The financial and economic collapse definitely had a differential impact on women. The GDP, uh, I mean, a very recent study showed that the GDP by 25% from 2017 to 2020, which is projected to a 16.5 loss in, in jobs, out of which are 50,000 for women. So, um, so it's like it's, it has affected women differently because women are employed in vulnerable sectors. Um, the economic crisis affected women differently. It was everything is aggravated when it, it comes down to women. So women are losing their jobs. Uh, uh, the only things, uh, the only job available, jobs available to them now are precarious ones with no social security system, uh, being abused, long hours, uh, minimally paid. So, um, uh, so uh, effectively, for the first time in Lebanon, it's said it's been said like uh, adults are skipping meals to afford uh, meals for children. The uh, protein intake from animal products is less than the recommended one. So this is this is really crisis. Dana, what is your hope, uh, or what's your hopes for uh, women um, in Lebanon for the? the coming um, era, post-COVID era. I'm hoping that uh, Lebanese women uh, really uh, unify around a uh, civil status law, personal status law. This is a must. This is the first emancipation. Uh, we should have a law uh, that's, uh, that makes all women equal against the legal system. We should, um, we should definitely build a new uh, economic um, a structure that takes into consideration women's needs. Women should have the same social social security systems uh, as men. They should be able to have, uh, for instance, the National Social Security Fund. They should the, the same laws should uh, should apply for men and women. Um, 
and uh, we cannot do all of this if we don't have women more women representatives in the decision making spheres we want women leaders women uh, actively working in the political life to also take our agenda further to take it to the uh, decision making table so we should be working along these lines totally agree with you it's refreshing actually to see uh, someone with with such pragmatic and detailed solutions that can be scaled across the MENA region really this is exactly what we need right um, uh, minds like yours uh, coming up with very pragmatic solutions Zena thank you so much it's been a pleasure to talk to you thank you Dr. Raman it was really a pleasure to talk to you this morning <laughs> Before I end this episode, I would like to shed the light on one of many feminist organizations in Lebanon. As I've mentioned before, Lebanon has a robust and active feminist civil society. Kafa, written as K-A-F-A, and meaning enough in Arabic, is, as their website states, a feminist, secular, Lebanese, non-profit, non-governmental civil society organization seeking to create a society that is free of social, economic, and legal patriarchal structures that discriminate against women. Kafa has been aiming to eliminate all forms of gender-based violence and exploitation since its establishment in 2005. Please visit their website, which is in both English and Arabic, and has a wealth of resources, including articles, campaigns, and videos. I've selected one of their videos to showcase here. Two of my students in the MA program in audiovisual translation translated and transferred the video into an audio version through voiceover for you. This video is a part of a sexual violence campaign through the experience of a puppet demanding the criminalization of harassment. Makrura is the puppet's name, and as the website describes her, represents every girl and woman subjected to sexual violence in the streets, at work, or in any public place. Liar, it was not rape. She wanted it all along, this is what she wanted. God help those who have daughters. Girls are an affliction, an affliction. It's her fault. Why does she dress like that and walk like that? Can't you see the world is not a safe place? Goodness, she should stay home and get married. She wants this but doesn't like it? Oh my god, this generation. And yet, people still excuse this behavior and make up their own stories. And the victim is still holding out for hope. Not condemning harassment encourages rape. We've reached the end of episode 6. As we're reaching the end of 2020, we only hope that 2021 will find solutions to our problems and end to our miseries. I hope the new year compensates us for what 2020 did to us. And I hope you stay safe and well. Peace and love to all. I'd like to conclude with the, the following words by Rumi. Doing as others told me, I was blind. Coming when others called me, I was lost. Then I left everyone, myself as well. Then I found everyone, myself as well.